The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Scorebox. Here are your headlines today. Wall Street posts its best day of the month after U.S. producer prices come in weaker than expected. Speaking to CNBC, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva urges the Fed to maintain its fight against inflation. The Fed will have to persist in uh, pushing it down. Why do we need that? Because without price stability, we don't have a sound foundation for growth. Austrian National Bank Governor Robert Holzman bemoans persistent core inflation, telling CNBC recent financial turbulence could prompt a strong rate hike from the ECB. I think if things change too much, 50 could be in the ballpark next time. What happens afterwards depends as always on the conditions. Pension reform protests rocked the streets of Paris again, with demonstrators storming the LVMH headquarters ahead of a key ruling from the country's constitutional council. And HSBC is warning shareholder proposals to restructure the bank will significantly affect dividend payouts as Europe's largest lender resists external pressure ahead of its annual general meeting. So very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Uh, let's get straight into the latest data from the United States. Uh, we finished higher on markets yesterday and some enthusiasm about the direction of the data. U.S. producer prices unexpectedly fell 0.5% in March. Analysts had expected no change on the month. PPI rose 2.7% year on year. Now, that is the smallest annual rise since January of 2021 and a sharp drop from February's 4.9%. Falling goods prices, including lower energy costs, helped fuel the downward slide. And I guess the key for markets will be whether they believe that data then begins to feed into the CPI numbers, Karen. And Jeff, we certainly saw the markets picking up on the data and we saw a pop for the major boards and the Dow rallying again, 1.1%, 1.3% on the S&P and you could see almost 2% on the Nasdaq. So that managed to snap some of the losing streak that we've witnessed, uh, three days of losses on the tech heavy index and putting it back on course for positive action for this week, tracking up more than six tenths of a percent. The Dow has been in front and the gains that we saw yesterday just topping up on those levels for the week, now rallying about 1.6% for the trading week. But uh, certainly big focus to not just on those big tech names around the interest rate story, but on the banks as we set up for bank earnings later on today. And uh, just worth noting that the KBE index has also been gaining now investors repositioning. And don't forget a huge show and tell season around what's been happening with deposits, the flow out, the flow in, but also on lending standards. And uh, you can see over the course of uh, the three months we've got to show you is a, a slide of 23%. But over the course of the trading week, we have certainly seen some upside up almost 2% for the trading week. I want to take you to what we're seeing elsewhere in terms of movement. It uh, has been a story of a, a much more hawkish tone still coming through from the ECB. Despite many investors now wondering whether we're at the point of almost at a terminal rate level for the Fed, one more hike and then done potentially, 
holding out or even cutting later this year. We've still had a, a number of different ECB speakers talking about the task ahead for the Eurozone in tackling inflation. And that has seen the spread between the US 10-year yield and the US Treasury shrink to its smallest in uh, a long time, about two years, near 100 basis points. So that is something we're watching very, very closely. 2.38 on the 10-year bond, 3.43 on the uh, US Treasury. And don't forget last time when we saw shrinkage below that 100 basis points, we had euro perched much stronger than current levels. We are tracking uh, much higher around the rate of 1.36. Take a look at euro dollar and you can see the escalation in that trade in recent sessions. Uh, we've popped, as you can see, 110.67, but we haven't, of course, closed the gap back to the 136 handle. So just worth watching this closely as you see some repositioning take place. Uh, the gold trade, this has been very much in the sights of investors. It's been uh, a safe haven trade. Investors also eyeing the potential of holding this particular asset. As you see, the uh, chance that Treasury yields could start to fall over time. And as a result, our dovish uh, outlook uh, has been something the market's been looking for. We've got retail sales later on to come through. And you can see uh, gold prices have rallied. We have been up around a one-year high. We've got to about 2.044. We're not far off that 2.042 in morning trade. So bullion certainly having its moment and uh, I know the gold bugs will certainly be happy to see that Jeff. Um, so let's talk about the markets briefly here because I think there are a few interesting things going on that we should bring to our audience's attention and that's um, the debate that's going on between the bulls and the bears here and the competing pieces of evidence that we're getting. So we had a bit of a relief bounce yesterday on ironically the fact that we had some weaker claims numbers. So the claims numbers perhaps indicate continued softening in the labour market, although it's still very robust. We had the PPI data, which appeared to suggest some moderation of uh, inflation uh, in that series. Um, against that, for, for those who want to believe that actually the US economy can continue to do okay, and if we have a recession, it's a shallow recession, the uh, mortgage data I thought was fascinating. So mortgage rates fell for the fifth straight month. Uh, that indicates, or sorry, the fifth straight week, indicating perhaps that the, the, the markets in terms of commercial lending believe that we're near the peak for this interest rate cycle. But also interesting, applications are rising. So there is still, on those uh, lower mortgage costs, there is some interest in owning shelter, as the Americans like to call it. So, so that encourages you to believe that um, the consumer still thinks that there is a tomorrow and that we're not going to have a terribly bad recession. And the other piece of information as we come into the bank earnings season, and we'll get that report, first report card today here, is that the Fed's emergency loans to banks that were initiated through this recent period of distress fell for a fourth straight week. So again, two pieces of data that for those who want to believe that there is a resilience in the US economy still here, I think encouraging even as perhaps the reasons why the Fed might want to go bigger in May are starting to dissipate. Yep. 
the, the demand story quite key at this point. And I think retail sales probably taking on uh, somewhat of a, a heightened level today as a result. And whether we see that 0.4% decline will be interesting because it is going to directly tell us how Main Street is reacting at this point to those higher interest rates. And we know there's a lag effect. You keep them higher for longer. You keep up pushing those rates up. Then eventually it does alter behaviours for those retail uh, shoppers. So we'll see that. But of course, the tighter credit conditions that have been reported, is that already making a difference on Main Street just yet? as well as what we hear from some of the banks. It's going to be interesting because j firmly put this one on the tee, saying they don't know the impact of the financial turmoil. And we are going to see that directly from the bank CEOs themselves and in some of the commentary to analysts and to media, but also in the provisioning. How much are they setting aside at this point for delinquencies? What are they seeing ahead in their own business? The movement of deposits and the lending side. I think this is going to be very, very key and it may have ramifications for the central bank on where it goes next on policy. That is going to be quite key. The other big points I wanted to bring up, divergence. Policy divergence. We've been hearing a lot about that from fund managers this week, that some are playing the very different picture now that you're seeing from central banks. I mean, obviously, ECB is still talking about hiking from here at 50-odd basis points still. And you can see the market is moving on it. You've got positioning around the euro, and that's not been a strong trade uh, in recent years, but the money's now very much going in that direction. So worth watching that. Uh, but uh, one of the comments this morning was interesting, and that was from the doves, uh, the, the, dove, the most dovish out there of central bankers, and that, of course, is the Bank of Japan and Ueda, who uh, has uh, only got his feet under the desk recently, was talking about the global economy to rebound after a period of slowdown, which will support domestic wages rising. Is that Japan, just a Japanese story around domestic wages reaccelerating, or is that a challenge for central banks as we talk about them turning dovish? That uh, if they don't get ahead of the inflation story now, could we see after a period of time a reacceleration? And that is exactly what central bankers have been concerned about: a second wave of inflation hitting at some point. I think we had three in the 70s, uh, and again, uh, I think everybody looks at that period and tries to overlay the template for this period. I'm not sure that you can do that satisfactorily, but there are obviously lots of similarities. I will just say, you know, you, you, you talked about the Bank of Japan. Um, we had another Asian central bank that's joined the Pause Club. Um, the Central Bank of Singapore has decided to pause as well. So that's now Korea. Uh, obviously, we know where Japan is going. Um, we've, we've, we've seen this from the Singaporeans. We've seen this from the RBA. We've seen this from the Canadians. So at the moment, we're just talking really about the uh, ECB and the, uh, uh, the, the Fed and possibly the Bank of England here who still feel that they need to work harder to tackle inflation. The one the one fly in the ointment, let me say this, and, and this is why you need to keep tuned to CNBC over the next few weeks here, um, if you're only an occasional dipper in and dipper out, the earnings season. And I think there's a lot of um, disagreement within the analyst community about which sectors are going to do well, which sectors are going to do poorly. But at the moment, the people that compile earnings expectations from the analyst community, uh, the likes of Refinitiv and FactSet, are calling this likely the worst earnings quarter of the year. Um, I think Refinitiv are talking about a decline of about 5.2% here on S&P 500 earnings. The question you've got to ask yourself is, is an earnings disappointment at this stage 
priced into markets currently or are we going to see some outsized moves to the downside if the earnings come in worse than anticipated at this point so there's a there's a lot of psychodrama to play out over the the next few uh, reporting days as we get a first look at what some of these numbers look like and whether ceos are using this quarter as an opportunity to kitchen sink or whether they're going to try and hold the look slightly lower the bar and step over the bar as they always try to do to convince the markets that actually we beat earnings. It's like one of those good old uh, English jumps races where you clear the first hurdle but as you start to tire and you reach the, the coming jumps uh, hedges you start to stumble over them. I think that's the concern the bar for that first one is so low but what about the coming quarters will those margins be hit is the economic outlook going to get more difficult and will these start to see companies stumble over the second third and possibly even the fourth quarter of this year. We're going to have plenty more on inflation and the market impact. Be sure to tune in to CNBC's exclusive interview that is with the BlackRock CEO, Larry Fink. Our US colleagues will bring you that at 1600 CET. The PBOC governor, Yi Gang, met his US counterpart, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, in Washington. The two central bankers discussed economic ties between the countries as well as current financial trends. The meeting comes amid escalating tensions between the two nations, which have led to officials on both sides limiting high-level negotiations. Um, I didn't see any comment on what facilities the PBOC would extend to China in terms of availability of uh, dollars uh, for servicing dollar-denominated debt. I didn't see too much either on de-dollarization. So we'll keep a, a close eye on whether there's any more news that emerges from that meeting. ECB policymakers, meanwhile, have warned about the impact of the recent banking sector turmoil on the central bank's rate-hiking path. The Austrian National Bank governor and ECB governing council member, I think, we'll all agree is a hawk. Robert Holtzman told CNBC the crisis is weighing on his previously hawkish outlook for interest rates. Meanwhile, the Italian central bank governor Ignacio Vithko said credit conditions in the euro area have, quote, substantially tightened. Well, Holtzman argued against his recent comments that the ECB would need to continue its 50 basis points rate hike, telling Germana recent events have shifted his view. You have a good memory, but these comments were made about two months ago, uh, well before the things that happened in the US and in Switzerland. Uh, and at this time, what I said is, if things remain unchanged, means number one, that the inflation rate uh, is, remains high, in particular the core inflation. And if uh, the rest of the economic conditions do not deteriorate, then we need to think about uh, uh, more increases than what we currently have, and they came up with four. Mm -hmm. Things have changed in the meantime. What has happened, we had the experiences in the US and in Switzerland. Uh, and what we also have, due to these experiences, uh, the monetary conditions are claimed to have firmed up. So uh, credits are sparse compared to before and also on the side of uh, credits uh, given out and the rates asked, uh, we have here a different situation. As a result of it, yes, I think if things change too much, uh, 50 could be in the ballpark next time. 
what happens afterwards depends as always on the conditions. Mm, it sounds to me like you're turning more cautious on the outlook. No, I take the change of the conditions into account. Uh, mm -hmm. And quite definitely what we experience uh, uh, with the banker crisis in the US uh, and with Switzerland, uh, this led to uh, changes in outlook. And if the outlook changes, we have to change your views. Mm. I'll come back to a question on, on the banking situation, but vis-a-vis -vis this upcoming meeting, various colleagues of yours have told me that the next core inflation print is going to be very significant because so far core inflation, core inflation has not peaked yet in the Eurozone. What would it take for the committee to change their mind on the size of the next rate hike? If, if core inflation comes in flat relative to the month before, would that be enough to go down to a 25 basis point or would it still warrant 50, do you think? I think uh, the persistence of core inflation is quite definitely one of the elements which will have to be taken into account because core inflation is a great predictor of future headline inflation. But it's not the only part of it which matters. Uh, what matters also is the situation on the financial markets. If the situation on the financial market uh, firms upper becomes more difficult for households and enterprises to take credits, mm. this needs to be taken into account. Mm. But how much uh, depends very much what the environment at this time tells us. The uh, Austrian Central Bank Governor Robert Holtzman there talking to Germana. Well, she also had a conversation with the Italian Central Bank Governor Ignazio Visco. Uh, he told CNBC there could be a lag between a rate decision and the real impact on the Eurozone economy. I have similar ideas. It is one to one year and a half. This is more or less before you still you really observe the effects on the real economy. But it is still uncertain because in the meanwhile many other things happen. So this is this is the say baseline. But then we have to really wait and see all the other factors that matter. Mm. Final question for you on the size of ECB's balance sheet. Uh, now there is uh, the goal is to start reducing it. Could you imagine a situation where the reduction of the balance sheet becomes the primary tool and the ECB stops leaning on interest rate hikes? Well, we have said that it has to be in a well-defined <coughs> way and measured way. So if it is measured, it is well-defined, expected. I don't see really major problems. Uh, obviously, if it is abrupt, then and then all of a sudden you need to uh, have uh, sudden measures, important measures for increasing the liquidity of the system, then the risk is high that you have to go back as it happened mm. elsewhere. Uh, well, there you go. Um, let's, let's, um, let's move just from the central banks for a moment. We've got a, a whole bunch of central bank speakers for you, but we want to take you live to Beijing because this is taking place right now. This is the German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock in China. Uh, some might argue that she's going in to tidy up the, the confusion that uh, President Macron left behind about Europe's position with regard to Taiwan 
and uh, its position with regard to trade with China at this stage. Others might argue that she's there effectively just working on behalf of uh, the German economy and uh, German relations with China. But we do have some lines here. Um, we see much potential in cooperation on renewable energy. We do not want decoupling from China. Uh, we expect fair conditions for German companies in China. The uh, German foreign minister says we, um, as the EU, are in favour of de-risking just as China is doing it. And this has become the um, approach uh, that you hear now from all uh, EU representatives that um, this is not about decoupling, it is about de-risking and we remain engaged with China but this is a much more realistic relationship based on the uh, behaviour of uh, Beijing towards some parts of its own domestic population and of course its uh, wolf warrior diplomacy internationally here. We'll uh, continue to uh, listen in. Um, she has talked about Ukraine as well and uh, said that uh, China should prevent the dual use of goods in Russia's war in Ukraine and China should ask Russia to stop the war in Ukraine. Of course the big fear in Europe is that China be encouraged by the Russians to supply offensive munitions to assist the Russian war effort. Really steering the European conversation back on track I think after Macron if you think about what Macron was communicating but hands off when it comes to, to Taiwan you know we're not going to get involved effectively so what does that mean you separate out geopolitics from trade that you still have Europeans doing a ton of trade deals or, or having trade outcomes with the Chinese but we don't want to touch any of the geopolitics however that means we probably can't touch any of the human rights concerns as well we can't get involved or raise any concerns we might have about that um, but also could you just actually have a conversation with Russia about Ukraine. I mean, it's, it's quite a mixed message from Macron, isn't it? If we're not going to get involved and we can separate out th these issues, but we actually do want you to get involved for us on uh, this Russia-Ukraine story. And I think the message, message from the Germans is, is very much back on track. Yes, we do want you to engage. All yeah. these issues are tight. You're going to have to talk to, to Russia for us. Uh, we want to talk about human rights with you. We still want to do trade deals with you. This is very much more a Western approach that all of the issues are on the table. We're not going to separate out anything here. I think compartmentalization is something that the, the, the Chinese would like. It's something that the Russians always sought. And they said, we can do business regardless of how we behave towards you uh, in diplomatic terms and um, however badly we torment our own populations. But um, to pick up on that specific line around Taiwan, the foreign minister saying destabilization of the Taiwan Strait would have terrible consequences for the global economy. The uh, foreign minister saying Europe would not accept a unilateral change of Taiwan status basically a diplomatic way of saying we would not um, like to see you invade the island. Drawing a red line there in this discussion today. Coming up on the show, protests rock Paris once again as demonstrators target one of the world's most iconic brands. And for more on the US producer prices as well as the latest market action and comments from the ECB policymakers at the IMF spring meeting, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
French demonstrators stormed the Paris headquarters of luxury giant LVMH Thursday as groups once again took to the streets to protest against the French government's pension reform program. The country's constitutional court is due to deliver its verdict today on whether President Macron acted unconstitutionally in bypassing Parliament to pass the bill. Footage shows crowds breaking in and heading towards the offices of LVMH boss and the world's richest man, Bernard Arnault. Now, opponents to Macron's reforms have called on the government to impose higher taxes on the rich rather than force the public to work until the age of 64. Uh, number one, bad look for LVMH, just as we're talking mm. about the stock reaching an all-time high yesterday to see the protesters circle. And don't forget, uh, this has been one of the standout companies in France. Uh, it is seen as a real leader, not just in that country, but globally. So something the French can be proud of. And I think the contributions to society from Bernard Noe over the years have been fairly strong. And we saw that particularly around the fire with the major cathedral yeah. in Paris. So it's interesting to see the protesters now turn on the rich, so to speak, and that divide that's now been emerging in society. The other point here is that the Constitutional Court is set to take centre stage. This has largely been a, a technical body, not something that's highly politicised like the US Supreme Court. Mm. So it's interesting to see that uh, every word that they issue today around this pension reform will be very much in the headlines in French press and potentially globally. What's it got to do with LVMH? I mean, quite frankly, this, this is a stretch, isn't it? This is, uh, I mean, there's, there's always been a, a deep vein of um, anti-capitalist sentiment in Paris. I mean, you've only got to look at um, the burning of cars on a regular basis that takes place in the French city uh, and, and um, the slashing of tyres, um, four by fours, that has gone on for years um, and not really been addressed it seems but uh, a statement both against those with uh, money and um, an act of I environmental action I think is how it's represented by those who think it's a good thing to do here so I have a little bit of sympathy here with uh, LVMH in this story because th this is not their protest this is not their fight but it's been brought to their door on the constitutional well, just, just, court. Just on it quickly, one of the larger companies, though, in France in terms of employers uh, would be ranking what close to. Uh top 12 so by employees perhaps yeah. from that perspective that it has a has some skin in the game as to just how those reforms nah, play out. I reject that I mean look um, you are uh, as a company you take the rules and you operate within the rules and we've talked to enough CEOs over the years between us that they will tell you um, it, it's not so much what the rule says that matters it's that we have clarity and we understand how we need to operate our own business based on the legislative framework the fact that the retirement age is going to move by two years in France is not something I don't think that LVMH was particularly lobbying on. Um, uh, as you know, we're, we're, none of those other French companies that we interview on a regular basis, whether it's Fr France Telecom or Dassault Systems or whatever, I don't think any of them have come out and taken a public position on how the government should move the retirement age. But let, let me just talk about the Constitutional Court as well, because I think, look, we, we've both been sat here doing our research on the Consti Constitutional Court, because it's not something that we've had to talk about 
at all. We've never spoken about it, have we? Right. Though? It's been in existence since 1958, but it, it rarely seems to get involved because, as you point out, this is about technicalities. It's not, it's not as you see in the United States, with the court weighing in on issues of public policy on a regular basis. The, 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 the research that I've been reading from France 24 basically points out that there are three decisions today that the court can make. It can effectively um, agree agree with the government uh, and reject the appeal. It can accept the appeal and then it moves on and has to make a decision about one, how it's constitutional or not constitutional what was done by bypassing parliament and then two, whether this goes to a public referendum. And I think that outcome would be very interesting but it would also continue to fuel protests and demonstrations leading up to any referendum which would take some time to organize here um, and it could modify the decision that was taken by Macron now what does that actually mean we don't know so it's likely that it will be a complex announcement from the court but be clear we will get an announcement today and it will have significant ramifications on this move uh, to bypass Parliament by Macron's administration. Now the question is whether, whether this also um, uh, gives the far right an opportunity for a rebound. We have a piece on our own website um, done by Sylvia about that, so go and have a look at that. But we've had 12 days of protests now in France and you're starting to see an impact on refining, on fuel supply, on serious pillars of the French economy and I think that matters at this stage particularly where you're talking about the Germans abandoning their nuclear capabilities uh, over the weekend effectively three three of the last nuclear um, electricity generating facilities will be closed down and we know where Germany gets its electricity from when it needs additional supply it comes across the border from France so if France is shutting down facilities as these protests go on that will have knock-on effects across the European economy so there's a lot to play for high-stakes game today and economically don't forget uh, France has been a decent performer in recent years the longer these protests go on the more disruption there is domestically to the economy so there are GDP uh, implications potentially and don't forget as we talk about Macron this is a man who wanted to reform the economy these changes even though it sounds very small to move the pension age by two years it does have a big cost burden on the French economy and changing this has been a key part of the Macron reforms even from day one from his last uh, time in office so this is quite key for him to push ahead with that reform agenda but the other big part is he didn't want to leave fragmentation behind and what you were seeing on the streets is fragmentation in fact driving a, a bigger wedge politically through the country potentially making the job even harder for the centrists come next election which is obviously some fair way out now but uh, there's uh, the level of protest the heat that you're seeing on the ground is not helpful if you think about the fragmentation towards the far right and the far left of can politics. you name a country that doesn't have fragmented politics at the moment well that's true but you don't want it to get worse is is the theory